Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Today we return to one of the most popular shows on Smart Talk, antiques and their value and their history. Describe it as Antiques Roadshow on the radio. I'm joined by David Cordier, President and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisals. You can call in at 1-800-729-7532 to describe your antique or email us a photo and description to smarttalk at witf.org. Dave Cordier, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Scott. You know, I, I probably shouldn't describe this as uh, Antiques Roadshow on the radio because it's a, a there's a big difference between being able to see it on television and, you know, doing it on radio where we're describing or we have photographs in front of you. And uh, so there's a big difference. But still, I'm trying to give people the idea of, you know, the general general format is kind of the same. Yeah, I, I think it is sort of the general format. Um, obviously, if especially if there's not even a picture, it's very difficult. Uh, but often what we can do is, is if we can't see the object, we can give some advice on how to pursue their own research or get information on their own as well. So it can be productive. A picture obviously helps considerably more and at least gives us a first look at something. So pictures are always uh, best. In person is the is really the way to go whenever possible. When you see something in person, what do you look for? Well, it really depends on what it is. Um, essentially, you're looking, first of all, to try to determine how old it is. Uh, there are very many uh, reproductions, and, and not necessarily reproductions that are made to fool people, uh, but, you know, remakes of things. Yeah, just because people like yeah, it. Yeah, they like them, so they, they remade them and reproduced them, and that can be art. It can be, you know, cookie jars. It can be depression glass. So they're not always made to fool uh, or to deceive anybody, um, but you do have to determine if it's authentically old or not. Now, once you get into hot, real high value things like oil paintings and, and you know, bronze sculptures and, and that sort of thing, then it becomes much, much more important to be able to determine if it's actually authentic. And sometimes that takes a very advanced expert. Um, there are people that uh, in the art and antique world that have focused exclusively on a very narrow area uh, up into included, uh, you know, uh, someone that might focus just on one particular artist and be their whole career has been studying that artist. They know that artist. They know the brush strokes. They know the subject matter. And uh, that's the, the go-to person for authentication. You know, I'm curious, what is the most valuable item that you have ever come across personally? Right. Um, well, actually, the, the most valuable thing that, that I've come across uh, and actually been involved with was a uh, photograph album. Um, and actually, I, I brought a picture of it that you could put on your website if you okay. like. Okay. Um, and a woman came into our – we do open appraisal days at our office uh, at our uh, first and third Wednesdays of the month. And people bring things in for appraisals and that sort of thing. And, and it's a way for us to connect with people. And we don't pressure them to sell them or anything. But it's, you know, a, a free appraisal day, basically, uh, we do it. And uh, this woman brought in a photo album that she found in the bottom of a cedar chest. Uh, and what it was, it was photographs from the Second Opium War in China, which was in the 1860s, give or take. Um, and what it was was photographs by a, an Italian-English photographer of war scenes, the summer practice, the summer palace, excuse me, uh, burnt down, uh, and all kinds of other things. Big, big panographic photos that, that uh, opened up. Anyway, uh, we looked it up a little bit and gave her an idea. We thought it was worth twenty to fifty, maybe $60,000. 
Uh, ultimately, we sold it for her for 410000 Wow! in one of our auctions. Um, so that is the most valuable thing that I've, other than real estate, that I've been involved in. And, uh, of course, we sold it for her. It, it did significantly better than anybody anticipated, uh, although by the time of the auction, we thought it would exceed 100000 But uh, And we had uh, the person that bought it actually was out of Maryland. and But we had people on the phone from China, London, all over the world, uh, and internet bidding from all over the world. So uh, it was very, very exciting, and it was great. And the woman that brought it in was a younger woman, uh, had a son that apparently needed a house because that's what she told us she was going to do with the money, buy the yeah. son a house. That's so, good. So that was great. A really yeah. nice uh, little story there. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I know that uh, we have many people impatiently waiting uh, for us to get to some of the items here, and we already have received some phone calls. Be patient because we will be getting a lot of calls today. But that phone number is 1-800-729-7532, and uh, you can send an email. And if you do send an email, send a, a photograph along to smarttalk at w. UITF.org. We've already received a number of um, uh, people who have sent in a number of items. Uh, one thing I did ask is that you keep your descriptions brief, if you can, along with those photographs. I have one from Carol, and I use this uh, on our website because it was one of the very first uh, items that we did get. Carol Gilbert said, I'm sending pictures of a very old high chair that came from my mother's family. She would be 118 years old if she were still living. I believe she said it was originally used by one of her parents, but I can't remember the details. I'd be um, interested to see what it might be worth. The pictures all show it in the high chair position, but it also can be collapsed into a rocking chair. Yes, great. Yeah, and I, I do want to add that apparently Carol is the mother of the Scott who was the first That's right. radio smart, smart talk Scott reporter. Gilbert. So one of your one predecessors. Of my favorites. That's right. Oh, he is your favorite. Okay. <laughs> one of your favorites. One of okay, my favorites. Okay, very good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, what we're looking at here is a, uh, a traditional-looking high chair with a tray. Uh, it does have uh, wicker inserts. It's definitely Victorian, which is about 1870 to 1880, I would say, in this case. Uh, it might be considered an Eastlake style, which is sort of a, a little more of a, rec a little more uh, curvilinear type of, uh, type of material. Um, and basically, this high chair is something that we do see with some frequency. Antique high chairs are, are relatively common. Uh, to most people, they p appear rare because they don't see them, but mm -hmm. uh, many an attic has an antique high chair in it. This one is a little better than most uh, in that it's a little more high, highly stylized. Um, I would give an estimate on this of maybe $100 to $150. Okay. All right. Let's go to, and I might jump around on you a little bit here. That's okay. Uh, ben? Who has the the two ivories? Correct. You have that. I do. Um, yes. He had. He sent us pictures, purchased from my uncle thirty years ago. He says they were carved for the emperor and empress in the mid eighteen hundreds. I know that the ivory sale is at least restricted, if not banned, unless it's over a hundred years old. Can you tell from the pictures if it might be from the nineteenth century? How can I get authentic determination of its age and least important any guess at value? Right. Um, well, one of the, the drawbacks of the pictures of the ivory statues or figures, we would call them, uh, is that we don't have measurements. So that that makes it a little difficult to value. But I'll, I'll guesstimate a, a, a measurement because I have a feel, a sense of what they might be as far as size. But first of all, before we get to value, a couple things about ivory. As I'm sure everyone has heard, uh, the, the trade of ivory has been 
significantly restricted over the last few years. Uh, in fact, it, the, the rules seem to change you know, a couple times a year as far as what you can sell, how you can sell it, and all that. And, of course, in our, our industry, it's important to stay on top of that because we do uh, have a fair amount of people that do contact us about selling ivory and that sort of thing. Uh, basically, the rule as it stands right now in very simplified uh, version is ivory to resell has to be 100 years old. Uh, it has to also be authentically 100 years old. So it has to have someone that looked at it that can really date it. Uh, if it's 100 years old, it can be sold. Or the other item is it can be imported to this country prior to 1990. Now, there you get a little more a little more restrictive as far as you have to be able to document it. So you'd have to have an appraisal from pre-1990 uh, to verify that it was, in fact, in this country. Uh, and you do have to document that as well. Those are just very basic things um, about it. Uh, some of the myths you hear about you can never sell it under any circumstances. That is not really accurate. Uh, you can own ivory. Uh, you can inherit ivory. Uh, it's the, the rules are around selling it, not... Um, not around owning it or uh, inheriting it from someone. So that's important. These figures uh, here, um, wh whether they were made for the emperor and empress is probably questionable, frankly, um, unless you have some sort of formal documentation that would suggest that. It, it's those, those stories seem to pass down a lot. Um, but I'm going to say if these are about eight inches high, uh, the value might be 800 to $1,200 for the pair. Um, the other thing you have to be careful about, and this occurs more frequently than I think it should, but it does happen, in that the uh, items that look like ivory and almost feel like ivory uh, are actually not ivory. They could be bone um, or they could also be resin. And there's ways to mold resin and finish it that it, it feels and looks and, and is hard to distinguish from ivory unless you have somebody look at it. Um, as far as this gentleman getting these authenticated or looked at, we could certainly do that at our office on our open appraisal day. Um, he could send us more high-resolution photographs through you. Um, so there are ways to, to verify it. There's also tests, apparently, but I'm not sure how reliable they are. Okay. So. All right, let's take a phone call for, let's see, we have Bill in Lancaster is on the line. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Bill. Uh, I've been to a lot of uh, flea markets and around, and there are dealers that are there, and you hear that, oh, that's valuable, that book's at 100 bucks, and that just raises my hackles. First of all, something that's in a book has, to me, very little relevance with reality because reality changes as to who's there to buy it, uh, where it is, and a lot of other things, including condition. And I'd like to get uh, the gentleman's comment on this, oh, it's in the book. So your, your question basically is, who writes the appraisal? Who decides? And who gives them the authority to say, I think it's $100? Okay. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Okay. Well, the guy at the flea market or anybody you're buying something from uh, is going to tell you, frankly, whatever they want. Um, if they're referencing something uh, as far as a basis for their valuation, I usually like to ask, well, what was that reference? You know, what book did you see it in? Um, and get, get a little more detail. Uh, most reference books at which there's actually what we're talking about here is price guides for antiques. And Covell's is one of the, the most popular ones. 
uh, and that basically constitutes pictures of things and values, and usually they're ranges. And actually, if you take the time to read the introduction to the book, you're going to find that it's full of disclaimers. This is one opinion by one person. Uh, most appraisers are going to tell you you probably don't want to sell an item based, especially based on a verbal appraisal. Um, so the the value of an item, you are correct, does also change. It's certainly about based on condition, absolutely, but also based on timing. Um, a you know a picture of Harrisburg could sell. Uh, fairly well in a Harrisburg area, but you take it down to Florida and nobody cares. Um, likewise, even the timing of it, uh, at our auctions, for instance, we'll have things in our auction and one week, you know, our live auctions, not so much our internet auctions, but our weekly live auctions where, you know, something will have a table and nobody will want to pay 40 or $50 for it. And then the next week it sells for 200 and it just so happens that people are there that are interested in that table and there's competition. Or so. there's items that at one time uh, when people were collecting them, they were valuable. I think the last time you were on, we were talking about Hummels, for example. Baseball cards, another example yep. that at one time, uh, you know, when everyone, the, the craze, it was basically supply and demand. Yeah, supply and demand. And it's also, uh, you know, what's fashionable, what's popular. Um, and, you know, so it, it's really hard to, hard to determine, um, you know, but it, it, advice from the seller, be that a flea market dealer or a show dealer, um, is what it is. It's advice. It's an opinion. And some are more accurate and some dealers are more reputable. So uh, a lot of times it's just finding out who you're dealing with and seeing what their reputation is like. Because uh, there's a lot of fine dealers that will educate you about anything that you're going to buy from them. And quite frankly, at a flea market or yard sale, it's usually the other way around, isn't it? That you there's something there that's worth more than it's being sold for? Especially well, the, yard the, sales? I, the, the reason why people go to yard sales and flea markets and antique shows is to find things that are that the seller does not really fully understand what they are so they can get a deal. I mean, and that's the whole... I, probably the, whole, the way the whole world works, frankly. But in antiques and collectibles, knowledge is king. So if you have an eye or you know about something, uh, you have an expertise, and there's, I can tell you, probably hundreds of people scouring all the yard sales in Pennsylvania every weekend or every day looking for that nugget, and they find them on a regular basis. We know that because they bring them into us. We're, we're <laughs> all looking for that Declaration of Independence original copy uh, that was behind uh, a really lousy painting. Yep, yep, <laughs> we are. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is David Cordier, president and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisals. We're talking antiques, and if you have an item, a piece that you'd like to describe or maybe send an email with a photograph, we've already received a few since the show has started, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or send that to or excuse me, send that to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can do it on WITF's Facebook page, but I would encourage you to send it to Smart Talk at WITF.org. All right, uh, Dave, let's go to over a few others that uh, we did receive. Uh, being a history buff, this is one that I was curious about personally. Um, Trish says, we have an original copy of the front page of a Gettysburg newspaper detailing the Battle of Gettysburg. And she says, worth anything. Well, that's a that's a big question with a lot of discussion available for that. Um, 
the, the questions that I would start with is what is the date of the newspaper? Um, because it's the front page of the Gettysburg newspaper, but it, you know, we don't know what age it is. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the battle was July 1st through the 3rd in 1863, so for it to have much value, it would have to be relatively soon after the battle, like within a day or two. So that would be important. The other thing that's obviously critical is the actual age of the newspaper. There are many newspapers that are reproduced, and often uh, they do say on them, uh, replica copy or memory copy or commemorative copy or something. So my first suggestion would be to take a very close look at the newspaper, uh, especially up at the masthead where you're going to see details or, or the base of the first page and check closely for that. Um, I did try. I did do some searching for Gettysburg newspapers and did not find anything uh, right after the battle that really described anything. Uh, specific about the battles, so in Gettysburg, uh, Harper's uh, a Gettysburg Weekly and newspaper. All those, yeah. yeah, they were all you know the New York Times right, and every, right. I don't know if it was called the Times then, but the New York papers, the Cleveland papers. There's tons of them out there uh, that were very soon mm-hmm. after the battle that are worth many hundreds of dollars. Um, but the critical part is, you know, is it authentic? Uh, and most, there are newspaper dealers online that you can check and probably send them a picture and get an opinion there because uh, a lot of the commemoratives, most newspaper dealers know if we saw it in person or if I had a photo of it, I could probably tell tell you or look at it uh, and say what it is. But the key with newspapers, we've, we've had some people that have brought us a lot of old newspapers like suitcases full that they've saved for decades. Um, and these are papers from the 1800s. And uh, one of the things that we found is that if you have a newspaper from, say, Pottsville that talks about Abraham Lincoln's death, but it's uh, three months after the death, not so interesting, not so valuable, because there, you know, that information has now spread out over the whole country. All the small-town newspapers are printing it, so there's many of them. What you want is, is, a, is a very soon-after report of whatever occurred. Again, in the case of Lincoln, it would be something a day or two later, main city stuff, um, and that's what's going to add value. Those papers can be worth thousands. Uh, magazines. I'm a little surprised sometimes when I see older magazines like Life magazines, right. Newsweek, some of the big ones that are not worth as much as what you would anticipate. I, for example, have um, a Newsweek from the week after uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. I got it for 10 bucks. And you know, and I know it's it's not worth much more than that, right. but that's something that it was history, American history, but it's just not worth that much. I guess because there were so many copies out there. I don't know. Why, why aren't magazines that valuable? Well, some magazines are valuable um, or more valuable, but you have to keep in mind, and I, I think what happened with the internet getting into the mix years ago, what happened is people, it, it just, it became obvious that there were many millions of certain things and s- certain pieces of memorabilia like JFK in particular I almost every property that we get involved with where we go in a house and we're going through to take things to sell at auction or we're doing an appraisal, almost all of them literally have some JFK stuff in them. A newspaper, a magazine, a, the, his uh, Carry the Torch book, I mm-hmm. forget what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so, there's, there's, so it's everywhere. And there just aren't enough people that want it. 
uh, relative to what's out there. So that that means the value is 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 not significant. One magazine, more modern, that does have some good value. Uh, often there are first editions of a magazine. Uh, the first Sports Illustrated magazine, which had uh, uncut baseball cards in it, is used to be a thousand fifteen hundred. Now right. they're four or five hundred. So there are magazines that people have in their houses that you know. So it, it's not one shoe fits all by any means. You have to look and go online, check it out, do whatever you need to do, get someone else to look at it. But uh, those Sports Illustrated are worth a fair amount. Mm-hmm. And you have to also remember that at before a certain time, there weren't what we now call magazines out there. I mean, even the 1920s, they were paperback-style magazines mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. So, All right, let's get to a few more of these here. Uh, Dave Helms sent in a child's rocking chair from my grandfather. He was born in 1907. Yeah, child's rocking chairs, uh, again, very common. We see many of them all the time. Going to have more sentimental value than actual resale value. A, a little rocker like this might be worth $15, $30, actually. Okay. It is old, but it's not valuable. Manual. Uh, this belonged to my grandmother. She used it as a nightstand and has a branding burned into the bottom of the top portion, which states Boston 1903. Right. And uh, what we're looking at here actually is what would be called a tea cart. Um, and basically it's on a, it has a big wheel, some small front wheels, some drop sides. Uh, they're called tea carts. Uh, it's, it's almost certainly not from 1903. It may have been made in Boston, uh, but it's not that early. I would place it more in the 1920 to 1940 period. Um, it could be a little earlier than that. It's not impossible that it's from 1903, but I, I would doubt that. Uh, these, again, we see them frequently. Um, we probably, in our auction house, have half a dozen to a dozen a year go through. And uh, in good condition like this, I would probably estimate it at 50 to maybe 150, depending. Okay. Uh, let's see. We have a set of first edition books about World War II by Ernie Pyle, the famous World War II journalist who died in combat. Um, wondering about their uh, monetary value and the best way to preserve their condition, this is from Colleen in uh, Greencastle. Right. Okay. Um, Ernie Pyle, as probably a lot of people know, was a war correspondent during World War II. He was a journalist and uh, won some awards for all that. Uh, so he And he both basically wrote dispatches back to the United States on activities, and he was sort of in the trenches with, with everybody. Uh, his books are collectible. Um, the a little bit about first editions. Um, you have to be careful about what you call a first edition because there's first editions, but there's also first printings of first editions. Ah. So uh, if you open up a book and it says first edition in it, that just means it's, it's it could be one of many first editions. Meaning, and it, it's very confusing when you're first learning about these kinds of things. But but it also has to be a first printing. Um, because they might do multiple printings of the first edition. And, and the way you can tell that is there's actually uh, reference books that will tell you, look on page 8, and if, if Ernie is spelt with a, a Y instead of an I, that's the second printing and, and that sort of thing. It's very, very scientific. Um, so uh, you have to pay attention to the details. Uh, I did not find any first sets of first edition books uh, by him, uh, so I'm, I'm a little puzzled about uh, what those books are and would like to hear more about them, like when they were published, uh, what the titles of them are, um, and that sort of thing. He, he did write a couple very famous books, 
Uh, Dispatches Home, I think, is one of them uh, that he put together after the war, um, or during the war, I guess. Um, so there are quite a few uh, books like that. Um, he did actually die in the war in the Battle of Okinawa, so uh, he didn't uh, apparently make it back. One last thing about books, I will give everyone a really good lead to look your own books up. Um, and we give this out all the time to people, but there's a website called www.abe. You remember ABE by Abe Lincoln is the way I used ah. to remember it. Uh, so www.abe.com. And that is a, um, a book clearinghouse for book dealers all over the world. And there are literally thousands of book dealers. And they have search engines on there, and they have an advanced search. So you can go in, and if you're meticulous at putting in the information off your book into the correct box, you will find that nine times out of ten, maybe more, you will find the book that you have. Because keep in mind, these books were all printed in many duplicates. Um, and there you will find what people, what book dealers are asking for the value of these, for these books to sell them to you. And that will give you a rule of thumb uh, as far as their value. So abe.com. One little extra point about looking online. There's also Biblio and there's some other ones, but ABE is the one, one we use quite a bit. Um, keep in mind that these are, in the most case, high retail prices. So uh, if you see a book on there for $200 and it's the book you have, you might want to be expecting 50 to, at the most, to be able to sell it to a dealer or, or even to anybody, frankly. So, And that's something that uh, you know we've talked about when you've been on the program before, that even though this is a value, it doesn't mean that's what you're going to get. Right, exactly. And especially when a lot of people uh, go to eBay to uh, figure out what something... I mean, I have seen items that uh, cost... that someone's asking $5 for, and exact same condition, someone else is asking fifty for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking and neither of, of them are selling either. Uh, either that's I, right. There's, <laughs> there are no bids. There are no bids on either one of them, which yeah. tells you something. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let's go to uh, speaking of books. This is from Dan. Dan Green. Uh, he says the whole duty of woman, Hagerstown, printed by W. D. Bell, eighteen fifteen, and I won't go through the whole thing, but he sent a lot of pictures. Uh, a pocket-sized book passed down through the family, The Thrones. It was gifted to Magdalene Throne in 1820. An interesting inscription in the back reads, This book is the property of Magdalene Throne. Steal it, not lest shame overtake you. It is a guidebook for young w women written by what reads to be an older, experienced woman. It covers topics from proper applause to virginity. So that's, that's just one. But uh, he did send several because he has updated versions of it all the way up to uh, 1923 as well. Okay. So what we're, what we're looking at here is uh, essentially a self-help book or a, uh, a pamphlet. Uh, we also see a lot of those. There's, there's the home doctor books. Uh, there's a lot of religious-based books from, you know, the early 19th century uh, up through, frankly, now um, that give a lot of advice on those. Rule of thumb is they tend not to be very valuable. Um, something like that, depending on, uh, and, and some of the thing that would affect a book like that would be illustrations. So if it's all text versus illustrations, that would that would guide us as far as how much energy we would want to put into looking into it. Uh, but for the, in this case, uh, it's not a book that I'm familiar with right off the top of my head. So I would suggest uh, possibly looking on to ABE. 
ABE does have pamphlets and other material too, so you can check that. And of course, there's always the Google box, which is very powerful. Um, and we use that frequently to find things. You have to dig around a little bit, but uh, we find things a lot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it might be worth 10 or $15, but, you know, there are also rare things. So I'm, I'm really saying that with uh, tepidation, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, I see that a couple of people are calling in, and we're trying to pronounce some photographs. Be patient. Someone will answer your call, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get you on the air. You know, one thing I was thinking about... Uh, the Republican National Convention wrapped up this week. Democratic uh -oh. National Convention uh, is next week. Is this the right show? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm going to stick to uh, non-political issues, but uh, you know, a lot of memorabilia was sold is sold at uh, both of these things. But over the years, you have a lot of people who collect, like campaign buttons, for example. Um, and this is an area where I know there are a lot of reproductions. How do you know the difference between a reproduction and something that is original? Okay. Well, it just so happens, actually, I think it was last week or it might have been the week before at the Hilton Hotel in Harrisburg. I, yes, I wanted to get they to it. They had a, uh, the, the, and I forget the, the, the name of the company or the organization, but it was the National Political Collectibles folks. And actually, Ted Hake who is from out of York, is sort of the, the go-to guy in the whole country and has been for many years for political memorabilia. He has an auction house down in York, uh, and he also does pop culture in that. But he's, he's sort of the, the guy for uh, Ted Hake Americana down in York. Go to his website, check him out. He's a good guy. Uh, taught me a lot about political stuff over the years. But anyway, yes, that very, very strong collecting political things. My understanding is some years ago, I don't know when, uh, exactly, but I'm going to say 15, 20 years ago, there was actually a law passed that any reproduction political memorabilia that is made in this country has to be marked as a reproduction. And so a lot of the buttons you see that uh, look funny uh, or they're tin and they look like, well, that's an old, you know, if it's, uh, you know, Roosevelt on a tin button, you might say, well, that, you know, why would that be on tin? It should be on celluloid, which is a an earlier type of material. Uh, it's supposed to say reproduction, and actually, if you look around the edges, you usually can find reproduction. My understanding, and again, is this is you know, I'm this is all in my head, and it, you know, the accuracy might not be 100 percent, but uh, my understanding is that the the actually the the collectors of this material are often elected officials, and so at the national level, they pushed hard to have a law passed that anything that was re a reproduction of a political nature would be marked as a reproduction, essentially protecting their own collections, which is great. Um, which is great, yeah. yeah which is okay. really good. We're not, yeah. Not, yeah. I'm just going to add I'm that saying it's great. I want to push that I think out. It's I just want to you know, make this sure uh, that everyone realizes yeah, that. So, a law passed that benefit. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> But actually, it does help everybody. So, right, uh, right. And they probably didn't spend a lot of time on it. So. Uh, there you go. So, look, so that's you, the story so look on that. But there, but there, the, what, I should say a couple more things about that. There are very, very, very valuable political memorabilia. Uh, there's a, I know there's a Roosevelt button that which is, Ted or uh, Franklin? Uh, the first one, Teddy. Ted, Ted, yeah, Theodore, Teddy. Yeah. Uh, he was the first one, right? right yeah. yeah. Uh, his butt. He has. I know he had a button that sold for ten thousand dollars, like a little, you know. 50 cent piece size button that sold for $10,000 years ago. And I know there's things that have probably exceeded that. So, uh, you know, if you have any political stuff, you do want to look into it. 
Now, the more modern times, uh, Kennedy is very collectible out of the the modern presidents. Truman is collectible. These are rules of thumbs that I've learned over the years. Truman is collectible. my understanding from that is that apparently Truman did not have a lot of money for his campaign, so he couldn't make a lot of material. So his are there's less than an abundance of them, so they're rarer. Um, the but most for the most part, though, with political items, you're looking for national political right. things, not right. definitely not local, and even state level stuff is is there's a very narrow collector base. And actually, uh, one local gentleman, Fred Noy who was a uh, representative from up her. in Perry County, yeah. uh, is a big collector and actually was at that convention a couple of weeks ago. I saw his picture in the paper. Mm. So there you go. All right, let's take a call from Joe in Dallastown. Joe, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Scott. Good morning. Um, I, I'm joining your program late, which is rare, but uh, uh, I'm sure I missed a lot of information. But uh, yeah, my question for your guest is, I, I have an artifact from the Hindenburg. Um, I tried to do some research years ago, um, even as to what that component is. It's a large mechanical uh, artifact. Um, my father obtained it from the crash site, which is Lakehurst, New Jersey, Uh and um, where, where do I begin to uh, establish the value, and what, what kind of market is is out is out there? Well, can I ask what it is? <laughs> when when I tell you that, we'll both know. Oh. I, I've had so many guesses. It's a mechanical part that uh, has two operating levers that operates sprockets. There are internal helical gears. Uh, in this component, it's it's uh, uh, cast metal, um, and and has some German writing on it. Um, I, I've had I, I've had people who uh, know German try to uh, uh, translate it for me. Uh, it may have something to do with opening and closing, or raising and lowering. Hmm. Uh, it might be ailerons or, or some function of the Hindenburg. Okay, so it's a fascinating piece. Um, and it shows good German engineering, but I cannot figure out uh, what it is and uh, how to establish uh, if there's a market for it or an interest. Uh, uh, hmm. so, All right, uh, Dave. Well, uh, you know, I have to say, oh, the humanity as we go into this. But go okay, ahead. Okay. Dave. Well, thank you. <laughs> It's, a, it's an announcer's obligation. That's right. Whenever you, they hear Hindenburg, that's they have right. To you say have that. to say that. Yeah. That's right. Uh, anyway, um, first of all, you're saying your father retrieved it from the actual site. Yes. Okay. Yes. And and the Provence on that is I still have a 97 year old aunt, um, my father's sister, who knows the story. Um, and, and I, I don't think you want to hear it all on the air, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a story as to, uh, my father was on site. Okay. Um, well, what uh, I would suggest you do, first of all, is document that. Uh, get the information from your aunt, write it up in some way, shape, or form, get her to sign it as a, you know, some kind of documentation of where it came from and what the facts were around it, what your dad was doing there, that sort of thing. That aside... Um, there are, I'm sure, I don't know for a fact, but I am sure, there, and, and we've seen Hindenburg collectibles over the years, things that came from the Hindenburg. I think we saw a fork once or, or some other stuff, because that was a huge piece of, of aviation equipment. I mean, it was, you know, there were a bunch of people in there, the whole thing. 
uh, I would almost guarantee you that there is an association or a collector's club or of some sort that are you know, focused on the Hindenburg and are experts on it and know a lot about it. I, there might even be some kind of museum or memorial or something. Uh, well, there you, is a museum okay. at Lakehurst, okay. um, and, and I visited there, and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of interest. Um, I, have a, I have a second uh, artifact, which is a faucet, um, and uh, I went to that museum, um, and um, one of the curators uh, looked at pictures, looked at the artifact, and said, yep. Uh, that that came from the Hindenburg, and yet there was uh, you know just mild interest in obtaining it or uh, documenting it for me. So um, it, it is out there, but uh, I, I, I'm I'm just stumped that there's not more interest in it. Well, uh, the thing you have to understand, and everybody should understand this, is that museum people. Uh, their mission in life is not like an auction house or an antique dealer. Their mission in life is to uh, uh, conserve history. And so their interest in value, their interest in, in acquiring things uh, other than through donations are, is very limited. Um, and all, uh, many museum folks, if you try to ask them anything about value, they, they get a little bit offended uh, because whether it's a, you know, a, a $10 cup that was part of something, or if it's a $50,000 cup in their world, those have equal weight. Um, they know they're not the same value, but they have equal weight in their conservation. So um, so if, if the best you're going to do with a museum person or a curator is get some kind of uh, information that it was that it is real, they're probably not going to give you anything in writing. Um, what you really would need then is an appraiser to authenticate it. And what I would suggest you do is call the museum back and say, I have something from the Hindenburg. Can you refer me to an appraiser who is familiar with Hindenburg artifacts? And I think that's who you're going to have to connect with because they're going to then, and they should have somebody. The reason I say that is that if somebody was going to donate to the Hindenburg Memorial Site or, or whatever it happens to be called, that would ha the, per the only advantage of someone donating it would be to get a tax benefit. And so they would have to have an appraisal to do that. Joe, what do you want for it? What do you, what do you want for the faucet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, Scott will talk privately. Uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, I think uh, I think uh, your program just uh, uh, provided a lot of uh, educational and uh, valuable information from this guest. Thank you. Uh, th hey, Joe, I have to run, but uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Enjoy your day. Thank you. I, you know that's that's interesting. I mean that, you know, Titanic, Hindenburg, all those uh, historical events like that. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking antiques today for a few more minutes with David Cordier, President and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisals. Dave, if we, uh, I know the last time you were on, and I, I hate to put you on the spot here on, on the air, but if uh, some of these we don't get to, can I forward them to you? And we just put them on our website? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. We can do that. You can uh, forward the emails to me. I think we did that last yeah, time. And then yeah. I can we, I can get to them in the next few days. And okay. Well, we'll, we just, we'll, we'll get back to everybody. Yes, we, we want to do that. We received a, a few here while we were on the air. Uh, someone once told me this is a Westgate wall mirror. I've not been able to verify anything. I can say that while looking over this mirror, I found a copy of the Reading Eagle stuffed in the back 
The newspaper was dated 1893, and uh, we do have a picture of it. Uh, what can you tell from that picture? I know it's a black and white picture. Right, that's okay. Yeah, these um, these mirrors, uh, actually they're called um, uh, East Lake. For a minute I was confused myself. They're called East Lake mirrors, and they are Victorian, and they, they're probably from around 1893 in that period, but they're called East Lake, not West Lake. So East Lake, not West Gate. Uh, okay. uh, East Lake was a, uh, a, a decorator designer, uh, similar to you've probably you know a term that everybody uses or that you hear is Chippendale. Yes. Uh, well, Chippendale was actually Thomas Chippendale who wrote a design book of these features that you see on Chippendale furniture. Well, East Lake was uh, uh, another designer who wrote a book about home living and designing and all that, and his his forms were more. Uh, you know the 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 standard Victorian was more uh, flowing in its in its decor, where this is a little more squarish type of a thing. But anyway, what you have is a wall mirror. Um, these again we see frequently. Uh, we so had one in our auction last weekend uh, at up in New Ringgold. We had an auction up there and uh, had had one of these in there. Um, so I'm going to say this is uh, very nice. Uh, probably. Maybe seventy-five to a hundred dollars. Um, you might see it up to one hundred and twenty-five in a shop. Okay. So. And let's go to. Let's see. We have Carol. Has the word game? Is it bagatelle? A board game where you roll a marble down a short ramp and it works its way through pins to the numbered slots. All are pre-mechanical. I've looked but never found a similar item of this era. I have a number of similar metal games from the fifties and sixties, but assume this is much older. Love to know a little bit about it. Yes, this is a little bit of a, a enigma for me. Um, it, it appears to be a, a pine board with paper over it, uh, and then you know a, a place for the for the marble to to literally just drop down into the board and then find its way back. Um, it, it looks pretty old to me. I mean, I'm looking at a black and white photo, so it's a little difficult. Um, I have not heard of the word bagatelle. Um, so that's, you know, something that I unfortunately can't just jump on right this minute. But uh, I can tell you that board games are very collectible. Um, and this also has uh, the numbering on it is older. I'm going to say the numbering might be at least 19th century, maybe early 19th century. It does look to be possibly European as opposed to American. Um, as far as the value, I, I'm thinking in the hundreds, but... Uh, what I will do is look at the color photo, and because uh, you took the trouble to send front and back, which is always good. So I will take the time uh, later today or tomorrow to take a look at the picture in color, and we will send you an email back. Okay. Let's go to Tony in Lancaster. Tony, you're on the air. Hello, Tony? Hi. Thanks. Uh, no, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Actually, I was just taking the backing off of a 18th century map right now. I had the phone on speaker. Uh, listen, I do a book restoration down here in Lancaster, and I wanted to add something to what David's remarks on uh, researching books. I, I, I do it with my customers all the time. Uh, there's a website which collects all the other websites, Abe and A. Libris and Amazon Used Books, and it's called Addall, A-D-D-A-L-L.com. And that's what I use for research when I'm looking for book prices. I certainly agree with his uh, remark that you can't really tell from what somebody's asking uh, what you're going to get. But the other, that's my remark. Um, 
that's that's just a, that's great information to have. I, I actually have heard of them, but I wasn't aware of what they did. So uh, we'll certainly start using it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you're really good. And the other thing is, uh, and this is a question. I got a book here which has supposedly had, well, which has an Isaac Newton signature on it, and the book is the right time and it's the right kind of subject that Newton may have owned. It's been rebound, but the flyleaf matches the text paper. And so I Googled the um, Isaac Newton signature, and there are dozens of them on the Internet. And it, it, it looks like an Isaac Newton signature to me, but that's something you would need authenticated by a, uh, a signature expert. Is there anybody around who does that, or do you guys do that, or what? Well, actually, uh, we really don't, okay? Um, and actually, we did get an email from a Patrick uh, Feener, on a General Colin Powell autographed photo. And right. uh, so that kind of ties into that, so we can cover two with one here. Um, and he wanted to know about a General Colin Powell uh, Secretary of State autograph. And that autograph is worth probably 30 to $40 and probably would not require authentication or anything. But basically, um, what has evolved over the last 15, 20 years with, with autographs is that there is a an abundance of uh, forgeries. And these are forgeries. These are not, you know, the, something that somebody's just doing for fun. These are people that are, are you know, forging things to try to sell them for, for some serious money. Uh, what, what did you see Isaac Newton's autograph value being roughly? Uh, about uh, 16 grand, but I'm sure it depends upon what kind of manuscript it's the one. Right, right. Okay. And with autographs, there's sort of a pecking order of value uh, the first one, first order, is what's called a cut photograph, uh, cut autograph, meaning it's just on a little square piece of paper. The next level is a typed letter. Uh, the third level is a handwritten letter, and the fourth is a, a photograph that is autographed. So that's sort of you probably know that, but a lot of folks probably don't. So anyway, but yes, you would definitely want to get that authenticated. Uh, there's a couple places to authenticate things um, because essentially you need a certificate of authenticity. Uh, Jay Spence, Spence Autographs, uh, is one. He specializes a lot in sports memorabilia, but he's expanded to also do other types of things. So I would probably start there. Uh, that's who we've used when we've gotten something real valuable. Um, so Jay Spence autographs. Where's I'm, Jay? Where's Jay Spence at? I think he's out of Philadelphia. Okay. I'm not really right. sure, but it's Spence autograph authentication or something like that. Gotcha. Um, and if you Google it and look, you know, just put it all in there, it'll it'll come up for you. But yeah, you want to obviously would want to get that authenticated if you're going to go sell it. Um, and if he can't do it, I'm sure. And he, he is a company. There's other people there, but. Um, you might want to uh, look into something else. And you could also give us a call at the office. I'm sure we have other names. There's a lady that works in our office that handles most of the sending stuff out for authentication. So we might have some other ideas for you. Hey, Tony, hey, thank, you, very thank hey. you very much for your call. Let's take one more call. Margaret in Mount Joy. Margaret, you're on the air. Thank you. Um, yes, I bought a puzzle of Joan Crawford. Um, when she was starring in Rain, and that was in the 30s. And I've never been able to find anybody that could even remotely give me a price or if it's really worth anything. It's a, a jigsaw puzzle. I have all, all the pieces are there. Um, it's apparently when her little Scotty died, and the contest was you could win a twin Scotty. The same as Joan Crawford. And, and Scotty, you mean by her dog, right? Her her dog. Right. And right. I, I don't yeah. know if that's 
if, if that was the dog's name. They always named him Scotty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As someone who was called Scotty all through his Scotty. life, yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so how big is your puzzle, roughly? Um, I'm going to say, oh, it's been years since I've had it together. Okay. Um, it's not big. Six inches by five inches? Page size. Oh, okay. And was it in a box, or is it just in an envelope? It's it's in an envelope. Okay, so it was probably something you sent away for and it came. Um, Correct. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, that would almost be called a premium or a contest type of a thing. Uh, I, I'm going to throw a number on it. I, You know, I don't, I'm not familiar with that exact item, but that kind of thing. And, you know, Joan Crawford is not something that's really aggressively collected these days. Uh, you know, 40s, act, 40s, 50s actresses. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, of course, is one big exception. Um, so I'm going to say probably, you know, 20 to $50 maybe at the most. Okay. Hey, Margaret, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, Joan Crawford kind of lost her luster after her daughter wrote that nasty book, and there was a movie that was per- apparently very awful. Yes. But uh, we have a, 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 just a couple minutes left, and... Uh, Peg Tansy sent a couple of things in. The, fo- the set of five woodblock prints of scenes of Philadelphia. Um, this one of Carpenter's Hall. The artist's name is E.B. Franklin, and all the prints are dated in the 1930s. You should have seen that one. This one. It's this one. Okay, let me see. Yeah. There's the Carpenter Hall. E.B. Franklin. Okay, yes. Um, I am somewhat familiar with this artist, um, these woodblock prints, and they're probably worth um, maybe 75 to 125 each if they're framed uh, nicely, which these look to be. Okay, and then she had another one, David Ellinger, belonged to my grandparents, I believe it was done in the 1960s. Here's the picture. of. Yes, David Ellinger. Uh, David Ellinger was a sort of uh, primitive revivalist that worked down in the Montgomery County area and... Uh, Philadelphia, greater Philadelphia area, and he did uh, paintings on uh, velvet, which are called theorems, um, and this looks to be one of those, and he also made the frames a lot of the times. Uh, I, depending on the size of this, and it, it looks like it might be uh, maybe 12 by 14 or something, um, David Ellinger has, has a, big, a lot of bios online. You can certainly check them out. Um, I'm going to say maybe uh, four to six hundred, you know, four to eight hundred, somewhere really? in that area. Yeah. yeah. Well, we only have about thirty seconds left, and Dave, this is a lot of fun, and we'll do it again if you're so willing. So, but I'm definitely I, I interested. I know that you have people that come in for appraisals. When do you do your regular appraisals? We do our open appraisal day, which uh, you can bring up to five items in, and we will do a free appraisal. Uh, there were the first and third Wednesdays of the month from uh, noon to six p.m. Okay, and you're where? Uh, we're at 1500 Paxton Street in Harrisburg. David Cordier, President and CEO of Cordier Auctions and Appraisals, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on Monday, merger between Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health, big decision next week. Also reports from the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia.